0: Ladies and gentlemen, sound people from the world over, this is your official welcome to the True Audio Sound Mixer Podcast. My name is Tyler Wade, and I'll be your host. Dio Ienis, or Diogenes, was a famous Greek philosopher who said, "...we have two ears and one tongue so that we could listen more and talk less." We all live by the same principle. It holds true for all of us with headphones on and looking at glowing LEDs. We hope you'll take the time to listen to, well, you. We're interviewing mixers from all walks of location sound, and bag, film and reality. We want to give you an idea of the community you have available to you and how closely we're all related and yet how far we are apart. It gets pretty interesting. So check us out, subscribe to the podcast, Give us some feedback. We're doing this for you. Listen in your car, at home cleaning up, or even during a lengthy MOS scene. Our very first podcast, Nashville's own Jesse Santoyo, sat down with Atlanta's Whit Norris to talk some shop, some history, and some gear. Take it away, Jesse.
1: Whit, thanks for joining us, man. Thanks, Jesse. So, you know, you know here at True Audio, um, more than just renting and selling audio gear, you know, we want to be a resource, to you know, aspiring you know sound mixers and, and even seasoned professionals. So with our sound mixer podcast, you know we want to you know bring folks like you and you know ask you a few questions that I think are going to be helpful to the whole location sound community. So we compiled a few questions that uh, we're going to ask you. All right. And you know, before we kind of dig into that, what's your story? Tell us a little bit. You know where you're from and.
2: Uh, originally from Birmingham, Alabama. Um, grew up there, went to school there, and got my start there. Um, in college, uh, well, I guess I could back up a little farther, you know, in, in growing up I you know, had a, a great appreciation for music and uh, tried to be a musician a little bit during the teenage years, but had a lot of fun. Also, you know, learned how to solder when I was a teenager, uh, learned how to put together the different radio kits and things like that. And in college I wanted to go work in radio, I had a real love for radio and started working at the uh, college radio station. And that was back in the days, Jesse, where we cut and splice tape. <laughs> so I actually learned how to cut and splice quarter inch tape and cart things up and learned mm-hmm. a lot about recording and playing music and being on the air. Um, and then uh, didn't, even though I was a film communication major, I didn't gravitate towards film or film sound. I was, I had my focus set on radio and uh, a few years into college, a production company uh, asked me if I wanted to do an internship with them. And they brought me down and showed me their studios and set up. And I fell in love with it. It's like, oh, this is great. And um, shortly thereafter, um, I was given a job there. that was because I put the film and tape library together. And nobody knew where anything else was. So they had to give me a job. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, anyway, um, I went on. I was taught how to use anagram, and. We even did some bad car commercials on three-quarter inch that I learned to operate in the field and doing sound on that with Sony ECM50s and other things. Come on down, buy it right now with the guys <laughs> screaming and hollering. But that was some of my early days, as well as some industrials and uh, uh, other types of commercials and documentaries.
1: So you'd say that's kind of when the, the passion, yeah. you know, for, for sound kind of...
2: Yeah. yeah, when I started that production company, I, they couldn't get me out. I was there every time I was not in school, every moment. And they actually had sh- dressing rooms and showers there, so really I didn't have to leave. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so one of the questions is, uh, the people who become production sound mixers uh, get into the professions in a number of ways. Um, for instance, some simply want to be involved in production, and for them, sound was an opportunity to get it. Uh, some might be attracted to the electronic engineering part of sound for picture, mm-hmm. and others might have experience with, you know, like you said, with music yeah, early on. Uh, in your case, uh, what attracted you to, to, to film and video production sound?
2: Well, the fact I, I'd, I'd had the uh, campus radio and a little bit of commercial radio background, and doing that, and then when I was introduced to more of the film side and how creative that was, and then doing sound for that was a lot different than doing sound in a recording studio or in an owner booth for a radio show or something like that. So the idea of being on location, being with a camera crew and recording uh, dialogue, that, it was great, it was making movies, it was fun. Uh, we also did, uh, we did Ringling Brothers and Barnum and & Bailey, we did their uh, circus spots for around the country and the Walt Disney ice shows. There was not a lot of sync dialogue involved with that, but some. And uh, so that was some of my early, early uh, recordings. And that was
1: in, in your hometown?
2: Uh, we traveled. Okay. The post was done there, but we traveled for a lot of the shooting. Uh, Ringling Brothers is kind of based out of Florida, so a lot of it was shot down there
1: because you're based in Atlanta now.
2: Yes, I've been in Atlanta since 1987 via New York. Via New York.
1: Via New York,
2: Uh, interesting story. Um, Ringling Brothers uh, got a group of us to come to New York and they had 150 boxes of film, negative, mag, and they had no idea what they had. So I learned how to uh, operate a sound reader and learned how to sync sound with 16 and 35 millimeter film. Basically, we repaired everything and transferred it for their archival purposes. And uh, because of that, I became a circus historian, uh, just because of all the uh, all the uh, footage that we would go through. Huh. So, what brought you to Atlanta? Um, a group of guys that I was working with that had worked at the production company in Birmingham decided, uh, the project ended in New York and some of the other guys had moved away. The production company just became a post house in Birmingham and most of us were production-oriented people. So a group of us decided to relocate in Atlanta, had a small production company, did some commercials and shoots for a while, but I was still doing sound the whole time. And then everyone went on their way. Uh, One of my partners went on to help launch the uh, Cartoon Network as a producer. Uh, I, another one went on to be a cinematographer and I myself went on to be a sound mixer full-time
1: so you were you were in Atlanta and because right now it's, it's booming right you know, that's always the talk now you know I, so you were there when you know it's, it wasn't probably a ton as it is now oh no not
2: at all I mean used to uh, until really just uh, four or five years ago I was gone most of the time I was working uh, in Pittsburgh um, Texas uh, Los Angeles uh, New Mexico, but I, I traveled a lot until just a few years ago before it really took off here.
1: So with that, with uh, with that in mind, there are probably a lot of things that are important in production, in production sound career, uh, and newcomers. You know, obviously at first don't understand. Um, for those starting out, what are some of the things that they should be aware of if they won't find that they won't find, obviously, in, in operators' manuals? Uh, like, for example, social skills with the crew on a set.
2: Yeah, that's the one thing that's hard to teach. It's easy to teach sound, I think, just teaching somebody how to operate a mixer or even how to operate a wireless mic, but teaching how a sound department works with a hundred other people on the set is really something you don't read in a book. It's something that I think only real experience uh, will get you there, and that is spending time on a set, whether it be a PA or any opportunity you get to work on the set. But I think that's something that's really hard to teach, that you don't really just pull out of a book.
1: And in that same mindset, obviously a lot of people aspiring you know, mixers always want to know, you know so, so how do we get in? You know, how do we get in and do these big gigs? or how, you know, and, and I think a big part of, you know, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, a lot of it is, just, is relationships. You know, and uh, just friendships that develop and out of that, you know, you, you know, you're on set and even just networking and, you know, here at True Auto, we try to put together events where, you know, we just get the community, community that sound community together, just, you know, to chat and hang out. And I think that's important. Wouldn't you say that's kind yeah, of a big... absolutely. I,
2: I'm, a, I'm a big uh, proponent of relationships and trying to teach the young people, come out meet people. You know, get to know people, the Facebook groups, go have lunch uh, or coffee with someone, um, you know, encourage them. Because being that there's only, you know, depending on what the project is, one, two, or three people in the sound department, you've got to convince somebody to give you a chance to be on their team. And so, therefore, it's about that relationship. And it's also about the relationships when you're starting off early, you know, maybe working on more indie uh, productions. And then usually these people are moving up and then hopefully you'll move up with them. Yeah, but it's starting off, even whether it's a small, small film or what, I mean, I started off on some very low-budget movies. Some of the first movies I did, uh, let's see, would have been uh, uh, Future Zone, and uh, there really be movies by a gentleman, uh, David Pryor, who just recently passed away. He did about 40 movies, but he was kind of the Roger Corman of the Southeast, and he gave a lot of us our start. He actually gave me a lot of confidence um, saying that that was some of the best tracks he'd ever had, which always kind of made me nervous. Well, who, who has been recording your <laughs> tracks before? Um, and that's, you know, that's back in the days of, you know, you maybe had two wireless in the kit and a, two, and a couple of boom mics and a Nagra and a Sela mixer. So it was pretty basic back then compared to what we have. There, there were no Comtex back then or IFBs. You, know, you could put everything in one case just about. And do a whole movie with it. Last uh, couple of weeks, I uh, have acquired a new cantar from True Audio, and I'm learning that and I'm prepping for my next show. And actually, Glenn's been kind enough uh, to encourage mixers to come to his shops to prep and to prepare for their jobs. And, and so I've been up here learning the cantar and wiring it into my cart. And there's been a gentleman up here who's been uh, pretty much hanging up here every day that I'm up here working on it. And John, uh, who I've got to know very well, a young and upcoming. Uh, sound person uh, realize that he's you know very smart, very intelligent. and I've had the opportunity to recommend him to some other people here in the last couple of weeks, and he's actually gotten a couple of jobs because of that. But it's that shows the relationship, and it shows I think uh, what I know uh, the article with Aggie and Mark Alano that has appeared in some of our sound trades, talking about mentorships, and I think that's really important finding a young and upcoming person and investing your time in them and teaching the craft because the craft. Isn't just taught in, in school or in, or in some right. some book you download for the internet but there's very some very great tools and great things for that but it's about passing it on from person to person
1: yeah and speaking about mentors uh, who would you do you have a mentor that you know early on that you know, I'm sure you, you know, I, you know throughout I, the years, you come across so many people yeah, that influence, I, inspire you, encourage yeah,
2: you. Er, early on at the production company I started out with, which was Air Mobile Productions, there was a gentleman there, John Hathaway, who was the first uh, guy to show me how to over and under cable. And he told me, if you're going to stay in this business, you'll be doing this the rest <laughs> of your life. You need to learn how to do it. And I would go out in the equipment warehouse and practice rolling cable. Um, so, uh he was not. He was a gentleman that wore several hats. He knew audio and knew it well, but he was really more of a lighting person. But he he passed that on to me. And then over the years, just uh, before the internet was what it was, we actually would get on the phone and talk with each other. I would talk with other mixers, you know, that I befriended or whatever from around the country, and we'd talk about different techniques and things we did and experiences we had on our, you know, different uh, productions and compare notes.
1: Early on, can you? You know, obviously, this is not something uh, we're not always proud to talk about. And making mistakes on set early on, you know, but sometimes it just, you just kind of have to. We have to kind of go through that in order to really learn. Like, wow, that will never happen again because I learned this. Is there a moment for you that you, you know, from production and? Yeah, I'm, I'm, we're gonna have to come back
2: to that. I'm yeah. gonna have to think yeah. about <laughs> that. Of, of what the one thing I really learned was. Well, you know what? I'll I'll tell one story. I think this has happened to everybody once. And uh, this was, I think, in the early DAT days. Um, I realized I had not rolled on a take. And so I was never going to let that happen again. I did uh, did get the take from the video sys guy and so re-recorded it so they did have it. And still had to sink it, but I mean that was one mistake that I made that i most of, most people that I've talked with have made that mistake, and if you haven't, then you haven't been doing it long
1: enough <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that feeling yeah you know, oh crap, yeah. like how do I tell everybody that I wasn't rolling yeah and and well, I didn't
2: I just managed to cover it yeah up. that's the, oh, you know uh. Um, and, you know, there, is, there has been a time of when obviously there was a technical problem or something with the recorder or on my end, and it's, it's happened to everyone over the years, where you have to just go to the director. I did not get that. I had a problem, whatever that problem may be, and that's always tough. But also I think the best thing is owning up. If you do make a mistake, right. take, t- take the blame for it. It's your fault. Don't throw somebody else under the bus. And if you step up and take the blame, people are going to respect you for it
1: it's common for different crews to work slightly different in different ways how do you like to structure the responsibilities like you know for yourself your boom operator uh, utility person um, do you like to be close to set you know during a production or you kind of rather be a little bit away from that
2: I, I like to be a little bit away I uh, a lot of reasons to give the shooting crew the lighting crew give them room to work they have to move a lot of equipment around and a lot of times that includes lifts and and cranes and things like that that take a lot of room, so I'll, I'll be back in the corner or be back around behind the set. And I also like having a, a nice environment, a little quiet where there's not a lot going on when we're recording, so it allows me to focus. And also our follow cart will be there, and so it's more of a quieter place to be able to wire an actor. Um, I've been, Doug Cameron and I have been together, he's my boom operator, Doug and I have been together. I've lost track of time, I can probably say over 14 years. Maybe more, um, as the years go by, I'm losing track, but um, Doug uh, is one, of, I consider one of the top 10 boom operators in the US. Most people that know him would agree with that. Uh, he, the problem with Doug, he makes it look so easy. <laughs> and uh, he manages the set. He has a great personality, he's very smart, knows his craft very well, and knows how to work with all the other departments to get what we need. Um, he and I don't even have to communicate that much because we've worked together for so long, we know how we're going to approach something unless it's something really out of the ordinary. Um, and also, Doug is one of these BIM operators. He never leaves the set all day long. I mean, sometimes we need to get him, all, get him to sit down for a few minutes to get off his feet and legs, you know, because he is there on the set all day long. Mm. Uh, he's not hanging out at the sound cart with me. He's not hanging out at the follow cart. He's, he's on the set. And that's where he lives, and that's where he feels the most comfortable. So that's part of my workflow. So I've always got Doug there. And the directors pretty much understand, and I uh, let them know, if you talk to Doug, you're talking to me. You don't have to find me or anything else. If you say it to Doug, you've said it to me. And that most of them are comfortable with
1: that. So I think the important thing about that is, you know, with working with your team, you know, you build that trust. You know with um, like you mentioned, when the director the director doesn't have to come find you, you know speaking you yeah. know to Doug is like speaking to you, and that's something you kind of develop. you know a lot of people are probably curious about that. It just you show up on set and it's automatic, but it's kind of something you know you build you know with being a team for a few yeah. years, you know you kind of Absolutely. learn each other and you learn to grow, and I think that's the importance you know of that of kind of having a strong core, yeah. don't you say and that's,
2: that's, and that's the whole thing is uh, making sure Doug has what he needs you know sometimes it might even be bringing him a bottle of water or if they bring out some food sometimes it doesn't make it all the way into where the camera is just making sure he's taken care of and we really we really try to watch out for doug uh, since he's always there and it rarely leaves leaves the set Uh, and uh on my team for over the past year is alana knudston uh she is um a young lady. the first time i've had a a young lady as a part of the team for a long time i've worked with uh, with other ladies throughout the years, but she's somebody that has joined our team and she um, has the personality to be able to deal with the actors and, and wiring them up. They, they all enjoy working with her. And the female actors don't mind uh, a female act, a female utility wiring I've noticed. That that makes them a little more at ease, and also Alana's a bit younger than Doug and I, and so she's really good with the younger people on the crew, and is a great ambassador for us.
1: So, so describe a little bit. Uh, you, you you guys arrive on set, you know, with your team. Mm-hmm. You know, do you kind of sit with them, and you guys kind of rally up, you know, or it's just you show up, and everybody kind of already knows what they need to
2: do. Yeah, you, yeah. Generally, it's going to be unloading the equipment, getting the equipment on set. Uh, Finding out when the rehearsal's going to be, to see when we're first going to block it out. Because uh, I feel sometimes it's more important that, that Doug is there, but we all three of us try to be there to see that, so we can figure out what we're going to do, and what uh, Alana's going to do for second boom, and uh, and to see how the shot's going to be planned out, and to see what obstacles you know that we might have to uh, work on.
1: So describe the process too. You know, maybe again these. Younger, you know, uh, aspiring, you know, production people want to know. So, you know, you're called to do, you know, a new project, a new film. Mm-hmm. How far in advance are you notified of like, okay, here's here's the story? What do you do for yourself at that point? Um, I mean, you, maybe you have the script in front of mm-hmm. you, and you kind of start already building in your mind of how you know things potentially may be blocked out or what you may need. Or is it literally you just show up and... No, I mean,
2: with the projects I'm working on these days, Jesse, I I usually have a script many months before we start shooting, um, or at least a draft of it. And the first thing I'm going to do is read a script just for the enjoyment of it. I mean, do I like this story? Do I like this project? These characters? That type of thing. Because I want to enjoy what I'm working on. And then the next thing is I'll read the script a second time, looking at it from a technical sense. Okay, I've got seven people in this scene that I'll speak. You know, that's going to be something I'm going to highlight. I do what I call a breakdown. And then also I'm breaking down uh, any potential playback uh, that there might be, uh, any type of music that might be used actually on the set. Um, Also looking for any... um, uh, technical things that we might have to uh, overcome, like if we're doing a, a, a picture that has spacesuits in it, okay? The actors are in suits, so then there's going to be communications that we're going to have to provide. We're going to be have to mic the suits, and it's not just to record the actors, but the actors have to be able to hear each other, and then they also have to be able to hear directions uh, from uh, the director or from the first AD, so there has to be a whole communication system that we're going to have to bring in and make sure that works for everyone. And the actors and the director being able to communicate is almost more important than the production sound at that point. And some people go, whoa, how could that be? Well, if people can't hear each other and cannot talk to each other when they're doing a scene and trying to get directions or ask questions and things, then everybody becomes frustrated and that frustration level can cause a lot of issues on a set and you want to prevent that from happening. And If you can prevent that from happening then you're going to be able to record your dialogue if that makes any sense. Yeah
1: yeah. and speaking about that one of the other questions that uh, we have here is uh, it seems that wireless microphones are relied on more and more and there's always a debate about how much they should be used and how they compare to to the boom mics. Uh, What is your philosophy about when to use wireless lav mics and when to use a boom? and how do you interact with other departments to try to have uh, the best scenario for using your boom?
2: Yes, and I'll tell you, I've been probably uh, one of the people who got on a little earlier with about miking everyone and tracking everyone. Through the fact, uh, it was this was happening more in when I was doing television, and when you're shooting with two and three cameras, there's not a lot of time for rehearsals and blocking. The only way that you can capture those performances sometimes is with wireless mics because you're lit out all of a sudden you're reflected out or wide and tight as we're always familiar with and my philosophy is if you already have a mic and have it tracked it's there as a backup you can still rely on your boom for, the, for most of the sound or hopefully all the sound I mean that's always our goal but we also have to be prepared if that doesn't work and you can't, and you cannot stop a scene in the middle of a scene all of a sudden because one camera goes wide or all of a sudden they do something else that wasn't planned, and say stop. I need to put a mic on them now. That's not going to go over well with production, with the uh, AD department, never, and and sometimes even the actors, because then you're taking people out of their moment of that performance. Well, if you already have a mic on them, and if you need it, you can use it. Does that does that yeah. make any yeah. sense? It's sometimes about you don't want to interrupt the flow, and if they're already mic'd, it's okay. Now, some people will argue with me on that, about, well, if we can just get it on the boom. Well, yeah, we think we can get most of it on the boom a lot of the time. But when we get pushed into a corner at the last second, we have a way out and can still protect the performance. But to me, it's all about protecting the performance, Uh, and uh, keeping people mic'd is another way of doing that. And if it doesn't have to be used, then fine, it's there if it was
1: needed. As far as microphones, what are some of your go-to microphones right now? Or even uh, tell us briefly about kind of the history of Uh, probably the microphones you've had with you and some maybe still, you know? Yeah, I I
2: guess my history was uh, originally with the Sennheiser with the 816 and a 416. Um, I didn't own those but I used those. They were in a production package that I would use. Um, Then as I started to buy microphones I went with the Sheps and I went with a Norman 81 and a Norman 82. Um, At that time I thought those sounded great. They had a nice warm sound to them. And eventually moved on to uh, MKH 60 and 70 and still use Sheps for indoors. kind of got away from the 60 and 70 when the chefs the CMIT came out and still used the shorter chefs for indoors and then eventually over the last few years I've been using the MKH 50s um, and that kind of replaced the chefs and just using the CMIT for larger sets and outdoors and then recently we have gone with uh, a DPA 4098 uh, uh, as a plant mic. The new game changers are the uh, The 4098s, that's a a long version that we have for some things, but here's a smaller version. Uh, We've been using these in cars, um, for plant mics, uh, you know, on a desk. um, whatnot. you can easily uh, plug them into whichever transmitter you own, whether it be uh, Zaxcom or Electrosonics, by changing out the uh, micro dot. Also, we have extension cables for them, we can hardwire them if necessary, or uh, extend the transmitter farther away but I really love how these sound. It took took my ears a little getting used to the first time we used them in a scene, but uh, I grew to love them Uh, quickly. They have a great reach. They don't have to be right here. They can still be a few feet away and they still really sound good. Another mic that we've just started playing with that I really like um, is another DPA mic, the 4017 shotgun. We used it a lot on the second unit that we just finished and everyone on my team was like, wow, And I think we might be, we were given one to demo and we played with it for about a month and really enjoyed it. So I think we're going to be adding that to the package before we start our next uh, picture. But, you know, it all starts at the microphone. So long as you have a good mic, it can be a Sheps, it can be a Sennheiser, it can be a DPA it doesn't matter, but just have, start with a good mic.
1: So obviously film and video production requires a ton of traveling, you know, Mm -hmm. depending on the script. Um, So I'm sure you've been to a ton Mm -hmm. of places. Mm -hmm. Is there one or two places that really stand out, that are, you know, really memorable? I had the opportunity to film
2: in um, Egypt and Morocco. Of course, this is many years ago before the political climate that's there now. And uh, that was great. That was. That was a lot of fun to see that part of the world and to work there. And then the place I truly fell in love with was Prague in the Czech Republic. Um, I worked on two movies there and just fell in love with Prague. I was much younger then, and I was just ready to pack up the family and move to Prague and become an expatriate because it was just a beautiful place, beautiful people, uh, so much culture and art there anyway.
1: So, you know, with uh, obviously with that, you know, um sound mixers with families and married and Mm -hmm. you know requires a ton of travel what's the longest you've been away maybe a lot a lot of these younger guys don't know that hey you know uh once you get in the thick of it you may be away for quite a bit you know on you know on these productions and it's you know that's just the nature of the business yeah
2: a lot of times it's easier to bring the family out than go to the family if you're working um so i would recommend that um Doug Cameron, with his family, because he lives out of town, he does not live in Atlanta, and he lives in North Carolina, uh, him and his wife have the two-week rule. So every two weeks, either they come and visit or he goes home and visits. And I think that's probably why Doug has kept his marriage. So I think that would be a good uh, a good rule to live by because it has worked for him. My perspective, I mean, I think all of us would like to see um, – there be a little more credit given to sound, and a little more respect. Some productions it seems to vary from production to production. Some productions are very sound savvy, very supportive of what you're trying to do. While other productions seem to care less. Um, obviously, I would like to see our craft uh, across the board, you know, being respected by other departments and in production when, when locations are chosen and things like that. And of course, the multi-camera thing is always challenging for any sound department if people are gonna shoot wide and tight. But as, I, I don't see it change, and I would love to see it change, but because of schedules and time, you know, they want to be able to shoot an episode in six days instead of seven, and so they're gonna use more cameras to accomplish that. And sometimes I think it's, if people would use, uh, choose their shots more wisely, on what's actually going to be used. One thing I learned in episodic television is, uh, you know, I'd see all the footage that was shot, then you see the final product. Very little of what was shot is used in the final product. All that excess footage and extra cameras and things like that, or at least what I noticed on the uh, some of the series that I worked on. Um, but I guess getting back to, I guess the production side of things. I don't know. Things are getting better. I mean, we're getting we're getting new tools. The the Cantar X3 obviously, I think is a game changer. Um, I was not a big fan of the, uh, the one and the two, but I really think they did a lot to improve that in the three. I'm very impressed with um, I think uh, Zaxcom is going to come out with some game changers next year uh, with the Diva 32. And I'm just glad that we have manufacturers that keep coming up with things. I would like to see somebody build a real production board. Uh, that's made to do our type of work that people are not having to carry inverters on their carts That's a, you know a 12 or 14 channel board stand board or 16 That's made for production sound that's not made for uh, another part of our industry, right. but also something else um, I think movie slate is going to Change what is going to be a game-changer. I think it, it already is a game-changer first. Let me say that but I think eventually, here in the next few years, you're gonna see that integrated with the script supervisor and with the camera department. And ideally, the three of us are gonna to put together one report for production that will all be linked together. And I think that's gonna really uh, change our workflow, so to speak. And that the script supervisor would be able to send to my iPad the correction for the scene number. You know, and it, right. it, it was seen, uh, you know, 25 and not 24 and that she'll be able to push that to me and to the camera department and that, and that this will get the camera department out of handwritten reports, which they're still doing, which is pretty antiquated when you think about where we are right now with technology.
1: Multi-track file-based recording has been the norm for uh, quite a while now, <laughs> but the track count seems to always be creeping up higher and higher. Um, tell us which, how you typically, uh, there's a few questions in here. So So. Tell us how you typically arrange the tracks, one through you know, whatever that may be and how many tracks do you find you need more and more in recent productions and, uh, and do, you think, uh, do you think those are going to increase?
2: I don't know if they're really going to increase. I think it, it, it depends on what project you're on and how many characters you're dealing with but for the most part I have a mix track, I have my boom track. And then we break out the ISOs from there. So generally, the third track would be actor who's number one on the call sheet, then who's number two on the call sheet, number three down the line. And then uh, after that, we would put in the plant mics and the second boom. And then if we were laying back the playback track, that would follow after all of that. Cool. Um, But that's generally how my track count's laid out.
1: And obviously, you know, from production to production it, you know,
2: it it stays the same and it's I think it's kind of important to keep it the same on a production that way they know okay the third track's going to be you know that an actor in the scene the fourth track is you know and the, my notes are pretty thorough too and um, labeling the tracks as well but you want to give your uh, downstream your guys in post production uh, consistency and that helps them uh, do their job quickly because with the um with the schedules that they're being given now, they're under a lot of uh, time constraints on getting everything uh, edited and put out there, especially on
1: television. So, looking back at uh, you know all these years, you know, working in production, is there like an aspect to this career that's been most satisfying for you? I don't know. You're gonna make me think. Um, what's been
2: the most satisfying thing about it? Yeah. I- I mean, I don't, it's always great to be a part, and uh, all the jokes have been made about you know, uh, sound mixers and sound people not being part of the film process, but yet we are, we're part of the people, uh, we're part of the team that helps a director tell the story, we're the team that captures those performances, so uh, hopefully they're not having to, having to be replaced because when you capture it in the moment when the camera's rolling and it's right there and everybody hits it just right, the camera operator, the crane operator, the lighting was just right, the performances were just right, and it was what the director wanted, and the sound was just right. There's nothing more satisfying than that, especially on those special moments when you're telling a story. Um, That's just satisfying. And also, I guess the other thing is, I feel so, so comfortable on a set I feel, you know, other than being at my home, that's one of the most comfortable places I feel is being at the sound card. So
1: you know, young aspiring mixers are probably watching this right now, and you know, some of them are kind of at that crossroad, do I jump into this career? Or maybe some have already started. So, so let's pretend you've walked in the room with young, eager, aspiring, you know, minds. What do you tell them? Um,
2: And I tell them this because I see this in my teenagers. Everybody wants everything right now. It took me many, many years to build my career. It didn't happen overnight. It didn't happen over six months. It didn't happen over a year or two. It took a long time to build a career. And if your heart's in it and you want to do it, be patient and pursue it and pursue your passion, but it's gonna take time. I think with the mentality that, the the younger people have these days. You know, you can download any video, any TV show, any film instantly and watch it on demand. You can have just about anything in the world delivered on your doorstep by Amazon in two days. Now you can cook any meal in about three minutes in the microwave. Um, But there's this, everybody wants everything right now and it's a thing nobody understands. Sometimes I think the younger people getting into this, it takes time. To develop the skills, to develop the relationship and everything else, and to have a really success. And there are people who obviously broke out of that mold and had some lucky breaks, but for the most part, it, it just takes persistence and it takes some years to build a career and be prepared to do that. That's the question.
1: So if if you had to give them three things that you felt are helpful as they jump into this and cor- in, into this career, what would that what would those be? Relationships. Um And
2: when I say that, don't burn any bridges. Treat everyone with respect, uh, even if they're the PA on the set. Because uh, that PA could be your boss in 10 years, or could be in a position to hire you. I've seen it. I've been a part of that. Uh, A gentleman I started with doing some of the early uh, low-budget B movies that I did is now a main producer, and still a good friend. He was working in the production office when I first met him many years ago. but it's all about the relationships, is to network, get to know people. And I've, I've tried to, and I've, not just myself and many others, I've tried to you know, embrace the sound community and, and you know, welcome people in, look at it as friendly competition, don't start having attitudes against people. But people also pass jobs on to each other. So I think the relationship side of it... The next thing I would do, if you're just learning or just getting into this business because it, the way it's based these days, it is a skill skill that you have to have is learning how to wire somebody and making it sound great. Um, even though all of us would love to do it just all on the boom, it's not necessarily that way, especially in reality television, especially in a lot of episodic television with a lot of cameras. So a skill of knowing how to wire someone is invaluable. and uh, I'm going to promote Thomas Pops' book, Down to the Wire. Thomas wrote an electronic book, and it basically goes through all the different methods to wire someone. I know 247 ways to wire somebody, and I learn four more on every film I do. So you've got to always continue to learn. Don't ever get to the point that you think you know how to do everything. And speaking of the wiring... Let's see if I can do this one. I mean, this is just a portion of the tools we use for wiring people and attaching and hiding mics. It's just a small part of it.
1: Visit us online at TrueAudio.com. <laughs> <laughs> I think a third thing
2: is continued uh, self-education. As we have new te- technology that comes out yearly, monthly Uh, We've got some new manufacturers in the game making different products for us. um, To to be able to to learn these products and and to be able to, you know, uh, continually to grow and to educate yourself. Uh, Back before the internet was what it is today, I mean, I would purchase a book just because I had one chapter on location sound and I could learn something new from that. And then, of course, uh, with my peers sharing, you know, trading information with them and now with, you know, people like True Audio and other vendors. you got to realize we are in such a wonderful craft to be able to learn from. You can, you know, if you're one of Zaxcom's customers, you can call and talk to Glenn Sanders, the president of Zaxcom, if you're having an issue or need some help or have a problem. You can talk to Electrosonics. You can talk to Carl or Gordon about anything or send them an email. You can actually talk to the people that make our products, which is pretty great. Um, The same thing with ComTech. I've talked to Laurel many times at ComTech. I consider her a friend. But I don't think there's too many other industries where you can just reach out and talk to people and learn from these people and the products they make, and and as well as Glen True and remote audio. um, There are things that, um, and they listen. If there's something that's not working on a product or something you want to change, uh, they actually listen. I made Glen put the power light on the meon. The first meon didn't have a light on it, so you didn't know when you got unplugged. And if you get unplugged, now it turns red. And I kept telling Glenn he needed to do that, and he did. Uh, but that's the relationship we have in our industry with our, with our vendors, and they're very open to us. And I don't really know other industries that are like that. But again, it goes back to learning from them and continuing to learn. Don't ever get to the point where you think you, you've mastered the craft and you've mastered the equipment. Um, but yeah, I mean, there was a learning curve from going from a mono Nagra to a timecode Nagra and then having to deal with timecode and timecode slates. And then after that, it was a learning adapt machine. And then for me, it was the uh, Diva 2. Uh, so I've, I've come up through and managed to stay a, stay a part of technology.
1: Wood, thanks for hanging with us, man. Yeah. I think that people are gonna really enjoy this, and again, we just want to keep providing, you know, resources to folks, and we're gonna, we're gonna be interviewing, you know, a ton of other people that you know are in that industry in the thick of it, and because you know we're learning and growing, you know, together, and and one of the cool things that you know at our True Audio shops is you know our op- open floor plan, and we have the gear yeah. set out, and we always encourage people, to come on, check it out, you know, we have a lot of this on demo,
0: come play with it, and. And, you know, use this as a resource, like you said, to, you know, continue learning. Thank you for listening to the True Audio Sound Mixer podcast. Thank you to Jesse for the interview. Thank you, Witt, for taking the time. I hope you all enjoyed. Subscribe to the podcast to make sure you're always up to date. You can find us on social media outlets like Facebook and Instagram. And, of course, our very own TrueAudio.com. True Audio. We know what it's like out there.